Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I have coached leader after leader after leader and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Mike Davis. He is the head of school at Colorado Academy in Denver. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks a lot, Jono. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. First of all, can you tell our listeners a bit about what you do? 
Well, I, for the past 14 years, I've been running an independent school uh, called Colorado Academy. We're pre-K through 12th grade, so four-year-olds to 18-year-olds, about 1,000 students. And in my role, um, I'm, do, I'm everything from the chief academic officer to working with my CFO and managing the business side of the school, working with admissions, also doing a, quite a bit of fundraising. Um, and then I also I teach a, a couple classes, actually, on uh, the war on terrorism, uh, which I've taught since 2002, and then a class I've taught since my graduate school years at Vanderbilt on the Vietnam War. And those are senior electives, and they're really fun to connect with kids uh, and to be able to talk about my passion for uh, history and U.S. foreign policy. And then what's unique about my school is that um, in the 1960s, uh, our founding head of school, a guy named uh, Chuck Froelicher, actually brought Outward Bound from England to the United States. And so that we, our school has a deep uh, history in experiential education. And I, I think I got hired because I'm a rock climber. So I, I, I love the outdoors and I, I lead expeditions <laughs> for students and for parents to get them out in, in the in, in the. Colorado Plateau area in Utah, but also in the Rocky Mountains. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and uh, great to get to know a little bit about your passions already um, about foreign policy and rock climbing. Uh, now, let's hear a bit about your story. I, I guess to start with, if you think back to your childhood, were there any moments or themes from that season that really shaped you into the person and leader you are today? Yeah, you know, I, I, had, I think like most people, we get affected by our family and the, the, the way our parents bring us up. Uh, my dad uh, uh, is a, he's a geology professor at the University of Arizona. And so uh, I, when I was a little kid, like in 1970, I was one years old that we moved out to Tucson, Arizona. Um, and I, you know, growing up with a geology, uh, a geologist as a father was really fun because <laughs> we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in the back of a pickup truck while he was mapping uh, parts of Southern Arizona and the mountains and the deserts. And, you know, I could see his, and unlike when you teach history or maybe English or some other subject, you know, teaching geology is a pretty communal. You're out in the field, you're out with people, you're interacting. Um, and I got to witness my dad with his graduate students and see his kind of love of learning that I think influenced me. Sometimes it was an obnoxious level of learning because every time he'd pass a road cut, he'd get out of the car and explain the geology and he'd be like, dad, I've heard this a million times before. But at the same time, I saw, I saw someone who uh, loved their job and like found real passion in it. And then over time, he ended up being eventually a college president and a provost of a, a major university. Uh, so I got to see that transition in the leadership. Um, that said, there was a lot of pressure, I think, on an academic front, uh, you know, being the son of an academic. Um, my parents would never admit to that, but I, had a lot, I you know, it's kind of had a lot of drive, but also some pressure to achieve. And um, mm. I, I think, um, and, and that was, it was kind of interesting. And I think my parents, like, they try to ignore that, uh, you know, that they, they didn't. But I think it was a household where you were kind of expected to uh, push yourself. And I, and, and, and looking back on it, I'm super grateful for that. And there was a lot of support. There, there was an understanding that we weren't perfect. We'd make mistakes. I think I think my first thought I ever consciously wanted to become a teacher is when I absolutely bombed a fourth grade math test and realized <laughs> if I was the teacher, I'd have the teacher's edition and I'd have all the answers and I'd be set for life. And of course, you know, teaching is much more complicated than that. Um, but I think that that was a huge influence. And I think I, I think from an early age, both my parents encouraged me to want to be involved, um, you know, like to, you know, whether it was student government, uh, I grew, you know, our parents were like Presbyterian Church USA. I became like on the, the session or the board of that church when I was a senior in high school. Like I kind of throughout my life, I've sought out leadership opportunities um, and I, I've enjoyed, you know, being in that position of, of um, being able to shape the reality that's around me and, and to do so in different ways, depending on the type of position and role. But I think I, mm. for sure, my dad was a, just a pivotal figure in a wanting to be an academic and devote my life to teaching and learning, but then also understanding that you could, you, you, you know, you, as a history teacher, like when I would be with my students, I could shape that. I can shape those students experience in the classroom, but as a school leader, I can actually shape an entire community. Right. And I and, and so yeah. I bring those same skills, I think, to bear when I'm in it, when I'm leading 
you know, what really is a, a, a business, right? It's an independent school of a hundred million dollar uh, campus and like a $35 million annual budget. And I didn't learn when I was getting my PhD in history, I, I didn't learn anything about how to operate a business, but you can use the same skill set as a, as a teacher to uh, lead that institutional change in really productive and positive ways. Yeah, I, I love the, I love that. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. So as you as you grew up after um, your fourth grade uh, epiphany about being a teacher, that you'd have the teacher edition of the book, which I just love. That's um, I have a, I have similar stories. I remember um, this is so this is so embarrassing, but for me it was probably grade eight. I decided I wanted to be a psychologist because I somehow I heard that psychologists made $160 an hour. I remember the figure. I don't know where I got that figure from back then. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, that's really good. You know what? I want to be a psychologist because they make so much money, which is just hilarious because, be you know, psychology is not like, it's the sort of thing you want to do out of passion. And it's not necessarily the career that you go, yeah, you know what? I want to really just make it rain. So I'm going to be a psychologist. It's something people do for passion. So yeah, similarly, it was a funny, um, uh, grade eight, Jono, that was, that was a funny thought. Um, so from there, Mike, do you remember, I guess your first or, or one of your first real leadership opportunities where you remember looking around and you were, whether it was in sport or whether it was um, in uh, in work or whether it was a bit further down and in your career where you were leading a group of people, where you were casting vision or you were responsible for a project, what comes to mind? Well, a really positive experience. I had an amazing high school teacher uh, named John Mankey. He was a science teacher and he was also our soccer coach and he was a character. Like he had been in the Peace Corps. He had this really amazing Toyota Land Cruiser he drove around. He, and he was just a really uh, a, a kind of fun guy, but kind, but also had really high standards. And um, I remember I was captain of the soccer team with one of my best friends and um, Dr. Mankey or the Mank, we called him, you know, he, he grew up in Latin America um, and kind of had a decentralized approach to coaching. You know, American coaches, particularly when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was like the Bear Bryant style. You know, we're going to tell you what to do and and and, and kind of boss you around. And, and Mankey was very collaborative. So he actually, I remember we spent, I spent a lot of time, probably a lot of time in his science class that we were supposed to be taking, planning our soccer practices and, and strategies for games. And I think that was the first opportunity where an adult kind of said, hey, why don't you why don't you step up and try this? Um, I had another experience in college, uh, again, with kind of a student government position where a person who really had no interest, I mean, I, I'm not sure what, why she reached out, but said, hey, there's this position, the student government, they bring speakers into school. It'd be great if you, you know, why don't you try out for it? And so there was some encouragement. Um, and I think those were moments that were really key. I also remember a moment, uh, I actually, I went to, I went to college and played soccer for a couple of years. But ironically, I ended up joining the football fraternity because uh, of my college roommate. So I was with guys that I, in my high school, <laughs> didn't have an American football team. So I was with a bunch of guys who were just basically meatheads. And uh, and they were a lot of fun. And now they're all super successful. But I remember for a period of time, I thought they were just being ironic. And then I realized, I think my junior year, oh, my God, they're not being ironic. They're just actually <laughs> kind of meatheads. And we, I remember we, – but I remember we had a moment like where there was kind of a bad situation that emerged. And, and I – kind of called i remember kind of calling people out like okay we say we stand for these things but this event happened and this is not what we stand for and and i think if you would have seen me freshman year in college joining this group of guys um and it was just like a local like it was really more of a club in a dorm it was a local yeah it wasn't a national fraternity it was kind of low-key but you wouldn't have expected that i would have been elected president my senior year and that like because i and i think it was a moment where i realized that there are there are times where you may have to take an unpopular stand or kind of stand up for certain values. And, and I was able, and I think a lot, again, I'm really grateful for an amazing education that my parents invested in, but the ability to argue, uh, to be able to put out a, a point, to be able to back it up with evidence and to be able to kind of win over the day rhetorically and, and, and kind of guide people to like, Hey, you know, there was a situation here we need to do something. We, and it was really interpersonal conflict between two people that went really south. Mm. But it was a moment where I think I realized that, like, you know, it's cliche, but in crisis, there's opportunity. And not that I was looking for me at that moment. It was more like, uh, you know, we just witnessed some like 
two guys kind of really have a conflict in a, in a way that affected the entire group. What are we going to do to, to, to do things right? And, and then in that process, you learn to kind of like, as a young person, how to, how to kind of stand up uh, to, in this case, bigger people, but also older people. And I, I remember that translating pretty quickly into, I used to coach swimming for a long time and I mm. I've managed a, a, a public pool in a low income area of Tucson. And I, I was like managing this pool as like 19 years old and all the people who worked for me were older. And, and I, I had a boss who was a really funny guy and his, his, his great piece of advice is, and I, I don't actually agree with his advice, but he's like, sometimes you have to remember you're more competent than the people below you. Right. And, and he was trying to build me up and just yeah. remind me, I, I, what I, what I, what I took from that now that I'm leading is I want to hire people that are way more competent than me. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, I actually, you want to be as leader, probably the dumbest person in the room. It's really helpful. Uh, so I, yes. you know, I tend to try to hire people a lot smarter and brighter than me and, and, and be humble about my opinion. But those, I think were some early moments where I was kind of outside my comfort zone and realized I could, you know, uh, you know, kind of make an impact on whatever organization I was with. And I think part of it was knowing, and I hopefully I've modeled this in my life as an educator, mm. but uh, being able to give kids an opportunity and young people an opportunity to kind of seize the day, to let go, and I think this is true with employees, let go of the reins a little bit, trust folks, uh, offer opportunities for people to step up and give them some breathing space, and then really you know, reward those folks who are going to have hard conversations. And like, and again, there's lots of hard conversations we're having right now as a society that are really tough at times. Uh, but to have the courage and, and the intellect and like kind of evidence-based, um, you know, thinking to be able to have those conversations in, in powerful ways. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so good. I, I think having those conversations is so important and it's, it's, uh, it's such a valuable skill because if you can, if you, if you know how to do that, you can really bring a community together. I think because it, we need um, more and more. We have you know communities where we need people who are able to, uh, yeah, bridge the gap. I think between people who otherwise wouldn't be able to, um, to really have a calm conversation about what they think or what they believe. Uh, right. So. With your leadership journey, so you were leading, uh, you know, the, the um, when you were 19, you had that chance around uh, leading, uh, at <laughs> running a public pool. What was your leadership journey from that point? Well, then, you know, I ended up going to um, uh, graduate school at Vanderbilt, uh, which was kind of a surreal experience, very formal. Uh, I wasn't used to that growing up. Uh, and it particularly like, you know, <laughs> In the 70s, when my dad was a geology professor, I mean, it was like hanging out with like him and a bunch of Neil Young clones. I mean, guys like with beards and long hair, basically hippies in their red wing, you know, hiking boots <laughs> and their, they had their compasses on their belts and, you know, drinking Coors Light by the fire and, you know, uh, singing songs. And it was just it, it, that educational was like very communal and like and these and these people were kind of larger than life characters who had all kinds of adventures they were climbers and explorers and you know it was and it was an era too where you know my dad like i mean we'd be, be he'd be in southern arizona which is like there's a lot there's some public land there but there's a lot of you know private property and ranches and cowboys and i remember you know my my dad would like see a no trespassing sign like dad are we really gonna jump this fence he's like oh yes yeah, it's, it's all good you know i remember one time it was in seventh grade <laughs> we're out there and I'm helping him measure like strike and dip readings on these folds. And I hear this click and I turn around, there's this cowboy with a 45 pointed at us. <laughs> and my dad doesn't miss a beat. He's like, hi, George Davis, here's from Arizona. Got some great rocks here. You know, the guy, and, you know, he had great relations with a lot of ranchers out there, but it was a, this was an era. Those, those guys had seen kind of the old West in a way. So it was, so there was like this adventure of fearlessness. Well, I get to Vanderbilt and I'm in a cubicle all day long. Yeah. Like his, <laughs> as a diplomatic historian, you're just, I'm going to presidential archives. I'm looking up papers. You're not having a lot of human interaction. And I think at that point, I really decided, like I had a scholarship. I'm going to get this PhD. I love, I love writing. Um, but I, I had a, such a great experience at an independent school growing up in, in Tucson. And I, I knew that you could, and I taught at Vanderbilt, but like the kids were kind of already, um, they were, they were either intellectually curious or not that point you didn't have you missed that window of getting a student really excited about history 
And yeah. so I, uh, I really decided, I think I want to focus on the secondary level and be at an independent school where you have a lot of freedom. And, and then, you know, I ended up at a, at a boarding school in Austin, Texas. I think I got hired because my wife is a nurse. And, and so they needed a night nurse on this boarding <laughs> school campus. Um, but it was, it was a great experience. And, and there, you know, at, at independent schools or private schools, there's a lot of freedom, like to really create curriculum, to create uh, opportunity for kids. I got very involved in an outdoor education program, leading caving trips to Mexico. We had a caving team that would, we'd explore cave called Monte Mayor, which is 500 meters deep. It's a vertical cave. We take kids rock climbing at a place called El Pachero Chico outside Monterey, where the uh, Mexican um, uh, Pancho Villa hid from U.S. troops in, during World War One. Um, you know, so it was kind of this, I was able to kind of reclaim that sense of adventure. But I think at that school, what I also saw was, you know, I couldn't, I actually was probably looking back now at my younger self was probably obnoxious. Like I was I, and I'd go to a faculty meeting and I'd just eat up whatever the debate was we were talking about, right? And <laughs> what's that Henry Kissinger quote? Like, academic debates are so intense because the stakes are so low. You know, I mean, I would I would get fired <laughs> up by these issues that probably were an absolute waste of my time, you know, and going out with beers with teachers afterwards. Can you believe we were doing this and this policy is this way and blah, blah, blah. But, of course, that led me to get involved and I became chair of the history department and the chair of the curriculum committee and eventually – that school had experienced kind of a, uh, a, a, a leadership turnover and I, and a financial issue. And I became at 33, a very inexpensive solution to a leadership challenge. I became <laughs> head of the upper school and ran, ran the high school. I had no wow. idea what I was doing, yeah. uh, but, but there was a point of, uh, of just, uh, diving into the questions and like, and ultimately, like, I think it probably, there was definitely a mixture of, of, you know, my own, ambition like you know the idea of like yeah maybe i would like to become a head of school but it also came primarily from a sense of service like i loved that school i loved the culture it had we had ex experienced uh that that school had experienced a, a serious financial crisis um where they found themselves in debt it meant a lot of hard decisions and yet how how to help navigate that school through that in a way that preserves its culture um, but also acknowledges that there are some things that needed to change. And that those and that I think that experience was particularly trying because, you know, I had been I mean, I had hair down to my shoulders. I was the rock climbing coach for the school. <laughs> I was, um, you know, I was just living the dream in my 20s in Austin, Texas, and with, with a great music scene and a lot of fun stuff to do outdoors, uh, an awesome emerging family with little kids and then a crisis moment kind of propelled me into a leadership position that I'm really grateful for, but it affected all my relationships with personal friends um, mm. who expected, you know, Oh, aren't you going to like, Hey, we have my contract coming up. What do we get? You know, like God, there's no, the, this school's facing like potential an existential threat here. Um, yeah. And so it required a level of, of learning about, and I think for me, it had been, there's, you know, as a leader, you always want to be liked, right? Like there's a element, like any, everyone, mm -hmm. we all want to be liked. But that moment really taught me that that is actually in many situations impossible, that if you're actually going to serve your institution, if you're going to serve your organization, your business, church, and whatever it is, whatever it is, you have to be willing to make decisions yeah. that A, are not going to be popular, that many people may not understand, mm -hmm. or you're, you don't have the ability to be as transparent as you want with your closest of colleagues because yeah. of either personnel issues or legal issues or, you know, whatever disclosure issues. And you have to get a tough, thick skin. And I think that experience was really hard, uh, but also just so uh, valuable when I look back on it. And, you know, and mm. again, like I've, uh, in, 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 again, at the time it was, you know, I wouldn't want to go back and do it again, but I, you know, I, I learned so much in such a short, you know, it was a five year period that I became, I came to my current job. Um, and also there's, I, mean, I learned also what I love about being in a school mm. is that like, you can't predict anything that's going to happen. Like your, <laughs> your job performance is based on the decision of moronic teenagers who yeah. constantly make bad decisions. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, and I love, and I, believe me, I love working with teenagers, but they are not fully formed adults by any stretch. So <laughs> you're, so you're, you're that, that, that is, and I think 
me realizing that fairly early was helpful. But then, but you're also dealing in a climate that is highly emotional. And mm. you realize you're, you're, at, you're kind of a, you have parents. I mean, every, so if you look at all the constituents of the school, yeah. you have alumni who like, well, I went there and there's these traditions. This is my school. You have then parents who are like, and particularly in a private school or even a public school where they're paying taxes. Yeah. Um, this is, I'm sending my kids here. I've chosen that this is my school. You have faculty who've devoted their lives and devoted their yeah. lives in almost any educational environment at significant cost in some ways to what probably they could have made in other careers, but they do it because they love it. So they have a really strong emotional stake and like, this is, I, and they also have a professional expertise about what's best for kids, right? And then of course you have your students who are, they think it's their school. So as an administrator, you're in the, you're in the mix of like navigating and being a broker mm. between all these really uh, devoted and uh, uh, constituencies that really care about your decision-making process, you know? So, <laughs> and that was a, that was such a valuable learning experience for me early on and, and, and learning also how to deal with that emotionality that comes with all those groups and then having some detachment and then some sense of humor about, because these are all issues and I could look back to issues at the time that like kept me up at night for weeks on end. And now it's like, why, why did I waste that much emotional energy? And I, and I'm at the time, I'm mm. glad I did because it made me a better leader, but you mm. also have some perspective of how kids grow and how most of what kids do and experience is actually, it's all part of a journey. And yeah. I know from my own experience in high school, I was a huge screw up. I learned <laughs> from that. It may be a better teacher. It's maybe a better person. We all, yeah. I think those teachable moments where we've made a horrific mistake, are, those are the things that can determine the kind of person we're going to become. Yeah, I I, I agree. And um, one thing that I found really interesting from your story, Mike, is I, I love how you've talked about um, the opportunity of crisis, not from a uh, opportunistic, like, oh, where's the crisis? Let me jump in there. But I think for young leaders who are listening, who haven't, uh, who are sort of going, I really want to have an opportunity to lead. What I love about your story is it sounds like so much of your um, learning and like you said, you wouldn't necessarily want to go and do it again because it's not easy. But I definitely think that young leaders need to realize often some of your best opportunities are going to come when there's a crisis and it's, it's, it's really hard. You're going to not know what you're doing. You're going to stuff up and make lots of mistakes, but that's, that's often the training ground. I just hear it again and again and again. It's very rarely I took over, you know, a succession planning um, that went perfectly smoothly. And then for the next five years, I learned so much. It's very rarely that story. Yeah, you know, and I think, and I think what's interesting is, and I would to, to young leaders out there, and actually, I'm part of a, a group for the National Association of Independent Schools that helps to try to train future heads of schools in the United States for independent schools. And, you know, I think people are so conflict diverse and, and, you know, just in general. Um, and I think it's hard sometimes when there's that moment of, Oh my God, there's a mess. Um, not everyone wants to step into that fray because it's kind of, it can be painful. It, it, it can lead to people forming opinions or judgments. Um, mm. but I think if you can do it with the right way, and I think a lot of times that is asking questions that is yeah. being supportive, it's listening. Uh, you may have a really already, and a lot of times I will have like what I think is the answer mapped out, but I'm not going <laughs> to lead with that, right? You, you, you know, you want to actually listen to what other, and particularly as once you're an established leader, you know, I have to be really careful now. Like if I say what I think might be an issue, I may miss out. I have, I know I have blinders, right? And so I, I don't want to like lead the room again, surrounding yourself with smart people. Let's, let's, let's let everybody weigh in because everyone's going to have a different perspective potentially. Uh, and if they don't, that means we're on the right track, right? That we've, we've isolated what the core cause or root issue is. But I think sometimes, and I think, again, it has to be about the, the motive, you know, and, and in this program, we'll, we'll interview uh, people who want to be leaders and I'll, you know, ask them, well, so why do you want to be ahead of school? Like, well, it's time. And that's not a very good answer, right? And I, you know, I think it has to come from some other place about the impact you either want to make on a field or an industry um, versus about just your own personal satisfaction. I think um, there, particularly in education, there are probably other careers that you will fill that satisfaction bucket that are more lucrative. Um, 
but I think if you're in a nonprofit world, and I would even say I I, I know a lot of business people who, you know, mm. they they run a business or industry that is ser- truly serving others, is providing a product, a service, or whatever. Yeah. And I think the ones who are really successful, are the ones who understand their ethical connection to their customers, just like I, as a teacher, understand I have an ethical obligation to my students and my parents, my and my faculty and staff about our mission and how we fulfill it. Right. And I think it's always about mm-hmm. being mission oriented. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, and, and I, just as a story, and you look at great leaders in history, they were those who stepped into a crisis and, and played this role. And I, I, I mean, it's hard not to think about a Ukraine and Zelensky. I mean, mm. here's a comedian. Who had like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was showing my students his Hava Nagila skit the other day. I mean, it's, it's, this is mind boggling that this mm. guy has come in and he's played it so well. And why has he played it so well? Well, he's, He's used his skills as a communicator, um, and but also he—it's all about mission in a way. And this is in yes. his case, it's saving his country, right? And so yeah. it's about serving others. And he is, and then at the same time, leaning into conflict with the West, leaning leaning super strongly into conflict with Russia, right? I mean, and I—I mm. I think any position, whether you're ahead of school or you're running a company or you're starting your own business, I think. You know, I think you can learn from historical figures about how they confronted difficult situations that offers a model for us. And I think great leaders, they, they lean into that discomfort, um, you know, and, and and even like even not even in a political sense. I, I think I'm, I love music. I'm obsessed with the Beatles. I mean, if you think about like I don't know if you watch the, the Let It Be um, sessions that um no, I haven't uh, watched Peter it Jackson yet. Put together. I, I and, really, I'm uh, going to because I love the Beatles. So, okay. Well, well, you'll see like this. Here are these guys at the basically the peak of their influence and power, and, and they're miserable, right? But they, but they're still they somehow <laughs> dr- work through it to produce amazing music, and they're at different places. You know, mm. Paul is having to kind of pick up control. Uh, John is kind of a mess, you know, with drugs and other stuff, but. Yeah, mm. kind of pulls it together for this session. Ringo is like the most punctual. Like he's there every day on time and hilarious <laughs> and kind of keeps the beat, keeps it flowing. And George is underappreciated and he knows it. And he's, and George is coming in with these like, you know, amazing songs and John and Paul are, you know, they're rolling their eyes basically. I mean, yet, yet here they are <laughs> at this moment where you think, God, they should have been just loving life, but they are, but it, but it was a lot about the commitment to what they were trying to produce that yeah. led to that some of that conflict and it, and that conflict actually made it good. So I think any leader has, has to be comfortable with a certain level of conflict and, and then, and then learning how to manage it. And like, you know, we've all had the bad boss who like over pushes their authority or, you know, or, uh, is a bully. And that, that's not, that's not what I mean by conflict. I think it's actually mean by being a calm voice that can help, resolve issues and help guide others in your organization to, okay, how do we take this and move this forward? And I surely, I don't do that perfectly every time. I'm pretty passionate about what I do. (laughs) Uh, But I I try to keep that in the back of my mind, you know, when we're having, we're having some issues. Yeah, that's, um, no, I I agree. And I I love, I love what you said there. I want to ask you about that season where you stepped in at at your previous school and you went through that um, unique transition where you had to move from colleague and literally um, close friends to close friend and now leader of the organization which is such a unique and lonely and formative place I'm just wondering are there any stories that are that would be appropriate um, to share from that season that really stick out in your memory about the the challenge of leadership, any stories that you just have really stuck with you because they really formed you in your leadership? Yeah, I think, you know, um, part of it was, um, it was a school that had been very faculty run. So every decision was kind of made through the faculty to a point that it was quite frankly problematic um, in terms of just efficiencies and, you know, being able to actually push the institution forward. Um, you know, I think um, there were great people at the school um, and we, you know, but again, the school got into financial trouble with uh, just kind of uh, building buildings without raising all the money for it. So I was the, the head of school had left and I was I actually was I, I wrote kind of an angry letter to the board about 
why they had to, had to leave. And they put me on the search committee because they had no faculty members. And I'm on the search committee. And the second meeting, we realized that the school was like in millions of dollars of debt. And no one knew it. And it was a, it was a big problem. And the, the, and then we, we brought in a, a leader who uh, was actually not really from a financial background. Um, and I served under him. And he, again, he appointed me in that role. And I learned a lot from him. Um, and, you know, uh, he... Um, but it was, I think the challenge for me was there were certain decisions that the, the board was making because, you know, again, a board in these situations is kind of going to overreact. They had kind of taken their eyes off some of the things that were going on at the school, and now they were getting really in the weeds. And I was kind of in the middle, and that, I think that made it harder. I think it would have been a, a transition in a time that there wasn't an economic or financial crisis. It would have been different, but I had to be kind of an intermediary between what the board and the head of school were trying to mm. do and what they needed to do, frankly, because this, it was a serious, I mean, this was existential versus a faculty who had never really been, I, I think, in a way, educated on like, how is a school a business? <laughs> you know, and I think that's for many <laughs> teachers, that's like, we don't really want to think about that. And in fact, when I was going to college, I was like, hey, dad, I'm going to major in history and religious studies. Great, Mike. You know, it's like knowledge for knowledge's sake. That's not how most homes operate in the in the country, and I think that for many teachers, that's not <laughs> how they were raised. Like they they study English or they study science because they think that's the be all end all, and that's what makes them great teachers. But there is a reality of like any private school or even public school, you've got to run it efficiently. You have to think about where you where you put your financial resources. So there were so I ended up having to kind of translate some of that stuff, and sometimes there were issues of this the the decisions that the board really felt needed to be made that I didn't always agree with, but I had to be, you know, I had to be in that position where I, I'm not going to undermine that position, but also faithfully mm. give some feedback to the board about where the faculty were. And I think that was a really challenging position to be in. Um, yeah. Cause you could see both sides. I could see the perspective from the faculty member that young Mike Davis, who was like super strident with my long hair and like, you know, we got to do this because it's the right thing to do versus now being in a position where, oh, God, this is actually how the world really works sometimes. And that there's yeah. uh, there, there's like you have to pay people and you there's like obligations. And and I, I think for me, what it was, was recognizing this school is like a little village. Like and I, I look at in my current school right now, I look at it like mm. I employ a lot of people. I take great satisfaction from being able to employ and, and support people. And I wish, you know, I wish our society had a different valuation for education and educators. I think we underpay teachers. And certainly my goal mm -hmm. is to continue to raise money for endowments and try to raise those dollars for, to get smart people in the classroom. But, yeah, um, but there's a reality there that I think sometimes it was really, it was, that was the, that was the toughest part. And then, and then also just like, um, I think the other part that was hard for me was I am I really, you know, I, I'm, as I alluded to earlier, I was kind of a knucklehead when I was young. So I have a lot of empathy for kids who make mistakes. And mm. in, a, in a boarding school in Texas, there's a very fine line for mistakes about, you know, can you stay in this community? And there mm. are aspects sometimes where that school had some tradi traditions of being a little more punitive than I wanted to be, but yet you were kind of yeah. stuck in this policy world. And, and I think eventually I got within a couple, and I think this is an important lesson for leaders is like, when is it time for you to say, this is what I need to do for myself? And I think for me, I, I reached a point about four years in where it's like, there, there are some great things about the philosophy of the school that I love, but there was a, a limit of what I could push in terms of cultural change for a school that had been around a long time for how they did business. And, and the way, mm -hmm. frankly, they probably needed to do business. And so I, you know, I, I wanted to be at a place where we could create a, we could create a culture uh, that was probably more realistic for where kids actually were in terms mm -hmm. of their development, you know, and, and, and be more forgiving and more restorative justice. And, you know, and, and I think, and again, I think boarding schools and day schools, that, that that's a different world. So that's, that's, you know, it, that's part of it, but, but it was, but the bigger point is like, sometimes you have to kind of step out and take a chance and like say, you know, I, and I was doing great. I could have probably stayed there for the rest of my career and I probably wouldn't have, it probably would have been a great thing, but I, I felt at a certain point, like I needed to challenge myself and I needed to find an institution that it was really aligned with my philosophy and mm -hmm. in, in a place that where I felt like I, I could have that impact as a leader to shape that institution uh, and help it grow and, and evolve. And I found that when I, when I came to Colorado Academy.
Yeah. Oh, wow. Incredible. Um, for leaders who are listening and scratching their heads about what that might look like, maybe they're early on, maybe they're just a year in somewhere. How, how do you know, what advice would you give about how to know when maybe it's time to, um, to call it somewhere and, and find something that is really aligned with, with who you are? I think it's, yeah, I think that's great. I think it's about evaluating your personal happiness, your well-being. Um, you know, as a, I guess, you know, part of me, you know, at the time I made that decision and I was, I was doing a lot of rock climbing, like a lot, I mean, climbing all the time. And in that world, you're kind of used to just stepping on a ledge and kind of going for it. Right. And knowing that, you know, you have, maybe there's gear and you got a rope and if you fall, there's going to be things that you're going to belay or there's things that are going to catch you. But there's, there's risk with that. And I think, I think we tend to think about risk in terms of like our, sometimes our physical safety. And maybe I have a little lesser uh, trigger on that because of just my interest in skiing and mountain biking and being in the outdoors and mountaineering. But I, I think sometimes people can, you, we can like limit ourselves because of fear, right? And it can be scary to apply for a new job. It can be scary to tell your current boss, oh, I'm looking for something else. I think a good boss, and this is what I try to do at my current school, I, I want my teachers to stay as long as they're happy, but I also want if someone really wants a new opportunity, gosh, tell me, mm. let me help you get there, right? I think yeah. that's, that's you, we want to build networks and communities. And I think there are some leaders who tend to be uh, probably overly territorial about great talent on their team. That's not a good way to run a company or business or school, right? So I think it's, and, and I ran into that a little bit when I first went out, my, my head was like, what are you doing? You're leaving. No, my God, don't do it. But in the end, there was support there. And mm. I really appreciated it. And I, you know, I was, I was fortunate that I it went more quickly, I think, than it can sometimes. But I think, you know, sometimes leadership is just about saying, raising your hand and saying, I want to do this. Like, I don't, you know, I, I, there's lots of leaders out there that I'm just, you can be stunned. Like, how are you doing once you get to know them and see them like working on an actual <laughs> project versus how they appear in public or on their LinkedIn page? You're like, how are you do? How are you possibly doing this? I don't think it's as hard. Sometimes I think to do it well is hard, uh, but I think it's amazing that I think a lot of times the the risk to being a leader, the risk to being a CEO, are such that it discourages a lot of really able people who worry about that. And I, and I think sometimes I think they worry about it because they worry about their life family balance, and their and I and I look at myself as someone who like. I bike like 12 miles almost every day. I take care of myself. I ski like I'm in Colorado, so I can, I ski many weekends. I try to combine my work with my love of, of the outdoors. In fact, I'm taking a group of students mm. skiing because they want to ditch, ditch school with Dr. Davis on Friday contest. Um, <laughs> and we're going to, and, and I'll learn a lot about what's happening at my school from just riding a lift with these kids. Right. So there's, yeah. I think there's creative ways of like merging your passions with your profession. Um, mm -hmm. again, I saw my dad do that. Um, and you'll be healthier and, and you can, and you like, and again, I see a lot of high level leaders in, in my role here and just getting to know civic leaders and business leaders in Denver, but also parents at my school are highly successful, you know, people can do both and they can create very happy lives for themselves while at the same time making a difference. But I think mm. it, sometimes it can be a, a little bit about fear because you're putting yourself out there in a way and you're going to be, people are going to talk about you. They're going to be quiet sometimes when you walk into a room, you know, they're <laughs> going to, cause you're the boss and you, and you have to, and I think again, back to my experience of my old school, that was hard mm. to accept because I had been everybody's friend and I was used to it. Mm -hmm. And like, it was actually easier stepping into a CEO or head of school role because everybody knew the, where the boundaries were. Like it was just, yeah, yeah. Like we're we're gonna be friendly. We're we're gonna we're gonna have. I can joke with you. We can have a professional, great relationship. But it's still there's a there's a power imbalance there. I'm just gonna acknowledge it right off the bat. And as mm -hmm. a result, my mental health and well being is better, and my relationships are better. And we and and yet you can still create a very fun place to work. You know, and I think yes. it's like uh, what's that? But it's like the Michael Scott syndrome in The Office, right? Where he wants to be everybody's buddy, uh, yeah. and not recognizing that he's this awkward boss. <laughs> so I've accepted that. I'm sometimes not, I'm just I'm just that guy, and that's okay because I know who I really am, and how people perceive me. That's on them. It's not really a, I can control all of that. <laughs> 
I'm uh, I'm actually watching The Office again right now because it's um, uh, my wife Liz and I we we love it. And there's a in season one he's he says this quote Michael Scott for anyone who hasn't watched The Office it's great for just cringe like everything not to do right like it's oh it's just so he's shocking. Um, but he says he says at one point <clears throat> you know what people say that you know you know they they have a boss that they either they love their boss or they they fear their boss but i want people to be afraid of how much they love me <laughs> <laughs> and i just love i love how yeah. completely unrealistic his view is on his dynamic with his people it's so you're right it's so unrealistic and it's um it's hilarious but it's also it is also what not to do right i think i think there are people who do try to buddy buddy up and let's just be friends and and i'm afraid of not being liked that's where it comes from and that's michael scott in a phrase right and that is yeah, such but, a dangerous but it's, but it's place also, to lead from no doubt and but michael scott he's such like essential that's essential human and i think that's probably why some people don't want to get into leadership right they've yeah they've been in enough like meetings in their company where their boss is talking and they're blabbing on and you know they're making fun of them and they don't want to be in that position you know and i think um it's a natural it's a and again i think that may be what distinguishes some leaders from you know from people who don't choose that is that you're willing to kind of you're going to take some abuse like that's just going to be part of the reality like there's that every decision i make um well not every but many are going to have um there's someone who's not going to like it. Right. And, and yeah. that's, you know, and I hate having, I hate having to deliver bad news. That's why pretty much I'm the easiest grader for my senior students all the time. Cause I, I just like, I take it easy on them uh, because I have to dole <laughs> out tougher. And, but, but you also, but I also remember that like a lot of times when I'm saying no to someone or saying, Hey, let's, how about we rethink this? Mm-hmm. You know, you're potentially helping someone again, as you're, again, it's all in the spirit of like, what are we doing? Like, our goal is to serve students. My job is to make a, the best educational environment based on our mission for our kids. What decisions are going to guide that for our faculty and our staff? Like, what are the decisions that are going to help them best achieve that goal? And, and yeah. sometimes that's a affirmative, enthusiastic, yes, great, do it. Other times it's, hey, I'm really sorry. I'd like you to think about this or sorry, no. And, mm. I, think what's, and I think what's really interesting for me as a leader coming out of the pandemic is like, you know, there's a, we got a lot of grace because we were able to sustain learning. People were grateful. Now the pandemic is kind of winding up. I'm starting to see those first real problems emerge. And I, and it's, I, you have less sympathy for some of those things of just, you know, mm-hmm. issues that, you know, and again, I'm an outdoor ed guy. So I think like when I lead trips with students, I'm like, I tell them no one's going to die, but you're all going to get pretty uncomfortable. Like there's going to be elements of like that. I think that leads to growth. Um, yeah. And I think, I think Western society, we've, we've, um, I mean, I don't want to go back to days of like where we didn't treat children well. And I think there are ample examples of that, but I do think Mm. there, there, our kids have such conveniences in life that they kind of forget that sometimes being patient, waiting, working towards a goal, striving towards Mm. something, those are good values are going to help you in life. Um, and that, you know, uh, we're we're not, we as parents, we should not be our child's friends their parents and sometimes that mm. means delivering tough love and and that will and that'll help them and that'll help them be really successful because uh, we want them to be independent adults and to be an independent adult you have to learn to deal with conflict you have to deal to learn to be resilient and i think we we live in a society where we're not necessarily rewarding resiliency as much as we need to be yeah 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 absolutely well let me jump into Leadership Express uh, to just a handful of questions as we wrap up, Mike. Uh, the first question I want to ask you is, what is a book that you've gifted to other people? I have two. One is Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, Let My People Go Surfing. An amazing book on his corporate philosophy, but also mm. you could interchange the words like gear design or clothing design with curriculum design. It's a really mm. great book about looking how to build something. And then a friend of mine named Chris Warner has a book called High Altitude Leadership, and Chris Warner is an accomplished mountaineer. And he yeah. argues that as a business leader or a leader in general, your ethics should be the same at sea level as they are at, in the death zone when you're climbing Everest. And he cites a number of examples from his own mountaineering experience of making decisions about the way you get to the top. It's about how you get to the top and the ethics by which you get to the top versus just mm. achieving a goal. It's a really powerful book. 
Yeah, I love it. Great recommendations. Thank you. Uh, what about a recent leadership lesson you've learned for the first time or been reminded of? Um, I've all, <laughs> I, I, so I, one of my most favorite presidents to study is Richard Nixon because pretty much his entire presidency was recorded at some level. Um, and he also made disastrous decisions that were almost mm. against some core parts of his personality. But Nixon had a great quote saying, this job wouldn't be so hard if I didn't have to deal with people. <laughs> you know, and, and Nixon, he isolated himself. He did, he let, you know, he, and he let himself not, I mean, he actually was so uncomfortable with um, kind of small talk interaction. He would memorize small talk when he'd interact with people at cocktail parties when he was president. And you know, I think the lesson is you, you have to be available to people mm. and you have to understand that every institution that's out there is, is human based. So meaning it's fallible. There are mm -hmm. emotions, there are agendas, there's bias, there's judgment, and you kind of got to just roll with it, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and recognize and kind of meet people where they are and, and have a sense of humor about it rather than trying to kind of a zero-sum cost kind of win at all like what Nixon eventually tried to do, which in the end brought him down. Uh, he mm. didn't trust his own – he didn't trust – I mean, he, he easily would have won that election in 72 without bugging – the Democrats and playing all these dirty tricks, but yet he didn't trust himself in that. Um, mm. and, he, and I think mainly because he became too isolated from others. So that's, that's something I just, I came across that quote again recently. And yeah. I, I like it. that. Uh, what is a great piece of advice you've received? It could be leadership, but it could just be in life at some point where someone gave you a piece of advice that really stuck with you. Yeah, one of my uh, former parents is a guy named Tommy Meredith. He was a he was the CFO of uh, I believe uh, uh, Dell and I think Motorola. Really accomplished business business person. And I was up in Montana fly fishing with him, and we were just in a truck together and just driving. And and I was a young parent at the time, and we were talking. And I taught his children, and he you know, he goes, "There's three things you can give your kids: values, and education, and memories." And that just always stuck with me, you know, in terms of, and I feel like that's what my parents gave me. Um, mm -hmm. That's what I strive to do with my kids. And, I, and again, I think you can do that uh, in a world of trying to chase your professional dreams and ambitions, but also serve people and, and then be with your family and, 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 and create a, a great life for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, okay, on a lighter note, all this can be serious, a, a movie or TV show that really impacted you? I love the the show The Wire. I don't know if you've seen that with uh, yeah, yeah, I have. It's a, it, I mean, it's a brilliant. I mean, uh, who, who's the who's the writer? I can't remember the writer's name, but you know, basically about the decline of institutions in America. Whether it's the you know, it's set on a police uh, a group of uh, undercover detectives who are trying to break up a drug ring in Baltimore, then it shifts to the school system in Baltimore, to the newspaper uh, media foundation. Uh, publishing industry and it just and, and also city hall and uh, mm. there's something about all the characters who are all very distinctive there's one character jimmy mcnulty and there's one point where he says i'm a leader of men and jimmy mcnulty is just a mess of a human being but i, yeah. I like that there's an element of and and i think what i what i i think what i like about it is like you watch and, and again i apply it to my own life you, you you see these big almost bureaucratic institutions who are just failing because of lack of initiative, leadership, um, imagination. And it's kind of a cautionary tale, right? Mm. That particularly, in a, I live in a world, I'm a private school independent. I can basically, I'm accountable to our families and our students and making sure our outcomes are good, but I don't have to deal with red tape. We can, we can have freedom to make moves. And I, you know, I, I, I think there's something about that show that like reinforces the value of being in a space where leaders and individuals no matter what their role in the organization can make a difference and mm. you know and you see that kind of story of the history of baltimore where that basically becomes impossible and, that, and that's a, you know i think that's not a good thing for a country we're gonna have to figure it out like and how do you mm. create the incentives for really good leaders to enter public service and mm -hmm. to get rid of the bureaucratic red tape to actually make great change possible and i think that's you know and it, which tricky now about teaching history and you're dealing with, I'm dealing with more mature juniors and seniors. They, they they see the world for what it is. Right. And mm. I don't want them to be cynical. I don't want them to go in their hole or just decide I'm going to be a hedge fund investor. I'm going to avoid 
serving the public. You know, we need young people to get out there and make change and to break through this gridlock and to be able to ask questions and to reach across the aisle and to have conversations. And, you know, I yeah. think, um, I think that's going to be really important for the future, but it's a, but I, I think there's a humor about that show, but also a depth about that show. That's pretty intense. Yeah. That's a great, uh, great answer. Great recommendation. Last question. If you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say? Uh, I'd say over prepare, work hard. I would live in the moment, be humble and be patient. Hmm. That's good. Love it. Well, I want to, um, well, actually, before I do that, for people who want to find out more about Colorado Academy or want to find you on, say, LinkedIn, where can people find uh, find you and um, and your organization online, Mike? Yeah, sure. So if you just Google Colorado Academy, Denver, Colorado, you could look up head of school blog. I actually do a weekly blog that talks about all kinds of issues, whether they're educational issues, sometimes they're issues at my school, but typically I write about more uh, broader issues in American society and just history in general. And uh, you can find me there. Or if you're in Utah sometime, you might find me deep in some canyon having fun. <laughs> Love it. Well, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. This has been um, a real joy uh, chatting with Mike. And I know there's there have been so many little... Um, snippets that uh and stories that that will have encouraged you um don't forget i have the john o'white leadership podcast and the leadership question of the day podcast two other places you can go to invest in your leadership but i want to finish today by saying a massive thank you to you mike for being so generous and uh just really appreciate you sharing your journey and i know a lot of leaders will find it encouraging um as you shared about some of the realities of leadership and um and how that's formed you to, to end up where you are right now. And uh, really appreciated your humility as well as you've shared that. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders and, you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders, and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I, I'm having a great time 
And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, John O. White or Clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself, and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it, and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.